0: Welcome to the Spring Break edition of the USC Christian Challenge podcast. Made by students and staff at the University of Southern California, we seek to connect and equip students to know Jesus, live lives honoring to him, and make him known to their communities. You can learn more about us at uschristianchallenge.com and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at USC Challenge. Here's part three of Bevan's three-part message, Total Forgiveness. All right.
1: Total forgiveness. This is our last session on this, but I promise you it will not be your last opportunity to forgive or to think about forgiveness. This will, as I mentioned, be God willing for you, a lifelong pursuit and learning. So by the way, for those of you who are joining us online, just a heads up, if you didn't know this, we're gonna be doing communion together at the end of my talk. So if you don't have a piece of bread or some kind of juice, uh, now's your chance to go scramble and get some of that real quick so that you can be a part of that at the end of the talk And um, by the way, um, I don't think it matters. What kind of juice it is uh, if it's red juice that helps the analogy a little better and You'll understand why um, But honestly last year when we were all uh, locked down, I led um, communion on Good Friday for our church uh, online and I, the only juice I had in the house was carrot juice. So <laughs> maybe the only time ever that communion was led with carrot juice, but I did it with carrot juice. So if you got carrot juice, that's fine. Use carrot juice. But go ahead and grab some juice, grab some bread. Then you can be part of that online when we wrap up here in a while. So here's where we've been on total forgiveness. We, we talked, first of all, um, yesterday morning uh, about the why to forgive, uh, the motivation, and the reason for forgiveness. Uh, Last night, we talked about the how-to, a lot of the practical suggestions on how to get traction because simply deciding to forgive is not enough. There's some actions that are required to actually move your heart uh, towards forgiveness. So we talked in greater detail about the practical side of forgiveness last night. Now, what I want to do tonight in wrapping up is I want to spend some time thinking about talking about the almost incomprehensible power that forgiveness has Um, forgiveness is incredible in what it can do in terms of healing for you as a person and the ripple effect it has it's incredibly powerful in order to understand its power i think we need to first take a little time and consider the power that conflict has. Uh, Conflict is what creates the need for forgiveness. And sometimes we tend to think of conflict as kind of a a moment or an event or a oops. But conflict, as we talked about yesterday, is, is kind of like pouring poison out on the ground. It just keeps spreading and growing more and more seeds. I think conflict is is, in a sense, kind of like a ground zero event. I use that term intentionally because that's a term that we've used more and more now in modern thinking to describe a conflict that just has tremendous ramifications. Uh, Ask any American, of course, where ground zero is and where will they say, where's ground zero for us? It's New York, you know, at the side of the world trade centers. If you ask someone from Japan where their ground zero is, they, of course, will point to Hiroshima. If you're from Poland, your ground zero is the shipyards in Gdansk. If you remember that piece of history, that's where conflict with the Communist Party, when Poland was under communist control, that's where that conflict just boiled over and exploded. It seems like every place around the world has their ground zero places. Now, technically, ground zero is used to describe the place directly below a nuclear explosion. I mean, it's the flash point. You know, it's the, the base of the mushroom cloud. This is where an atomic chain reaction reaches critical mass, resulting in an explosion. So why do we use a term that was first used to describe the power of a nuclear explosion, to describe the power of conflict? Well, I think it's because there's similar impact that both a physical nuclear explosion has, as well as a relational conflict or explosion has. Um, this is what ground zero does, is it, it just sends shockwaves out and just destroys all kinds of things. And it's not over when the shock waves go away. Radiation lingers for hundreds of years sometimes. Now, personal conflicts have this kind of impact. The mushroom cloud may not be visible, of course, not visible enough to make the news, but the fallout lingers, kind of like radiation does. Now, there are many places in history where conflict has boiled over into a ground zero kind of event that is big enough to make the history books. But the ground zero of all ground zero conflicts took place 2,000 years ago on a cross. So on that hill, outside of the city of Jerusalem, a conflict that had been brewing for millennia finally reached critical mass. And on that day, and in that place, the sky turned black, and the rocks split, and this massive curtain in the middle of the temple split in two, and it became pretty clear to anyone who was there on that day that this was not just any old ordinary crucifixion. Something more was going on here, something much bigger was afoot. What was going on is the ground zero of sin was meeting the ground zero of God's forgiveness. That's the only thing powerful enough to counter the destructive nature of conflict. Now earlier in that same year that the crucifixion took place, Jesus, the one who was being crucified, had explained the power of forgiveness to Peter. Peter was facing some kind of relational ground zero moment of his own. We're not told what the conflict was, but Peter asked Jesus a question that we've all asked, at least in our hearts. It's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 22. This is what we read. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, that sounds like a lot, and I know it sounded like a lot to Peter. Jesus answered, though, and says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Then Jesus proceeds, after saying this, to tell a parable, a story about a king who decides to collect on some debt that he's owed, and this is not just some minor debt. Jesus tells the amount of money. And if you were to translate it into today's dollars, it would be around $700 million worth of debt. This king goes to collect. So there's an individual who owes the king $700 million. He is found. He's brought before the king and he is demanded to pay up. Well, he begs for mercy because with a debt of that amount, He had absolutely no way to repay the king. Well, what I think everyone expected to happen is this man would be thrown into debtor's prison. There was no bankruptcy laws in this time of history. You paid for it with your life if you were not able to pay for it monetarily. But what the king does, to everyone's surprise, is the king forgives this massive $700 million debt. Now, just let that sink in for a while. Just imagine, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine amassing that kind of debt. Imagine the weight that that must have been on this man by now. And then to have the king forgive it all, to cancel it all? But that's what happened. And then as Jesus continues in the parable, this forgiven man walks out of the king's chambers and he sees a guy who owes him $800. That's the equivalent, monetarily, in the story Jesus tells. And he walks up to this man, and he literally grabs a hold of him, and he wrings his neck, and he demands that this man pay him the $800 that he owes him. Well, it's not $700 million, but this man doesn't have the $800 any more than he had the $700 million. So he does the same thing this man just did to the king. He begs. For time, he begs for forgiveness. But the recently forgiven man refuses and has the $800 man arrested and thrown in prison until he can pay off the debt. Now, this is incredible to think that someone would have just received this much forgiveness and would turn around... And it would never occur to them, it would never dawn on them that maybe they should have the same kind of mercy that was just given to them. But of course, we can see the point of the story Jesus is making. This is us. We have been forgiven by God a debt that is far greater than $700 million dollars and we are owed by people who have wronged us, much less, really, than $800 in comparison to these two debts. But over and over and over again, having received God's forgiveness, having cried out for God's mercy and received it, we turn around and refuse to give it. And the point Jesus is making in this story, remember the context Peter has just asked, How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven? And so Jesus tells this story. And the point is is this. The forgiveness that Jesus is about to offer that year, later that year on the cross, is about more than just God canceling our debt. It is that. That is the center of the transaction. The forgiveness of sins. But it is... Intended to be a ground zero event that starts a chain reaction of forgiveness to counter all of the chain reactions of conflict and sin. When we forgive, we unleash this exponentially great power. That's because forgiveness is exponential. That's the nature of forgiveness. Let me explain what I mean by that. Peter is really asking Jesus a math question about forgiveness. So again, this is what Peter says, Matthew 18, 21, 22. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. So Peter is seeing forgiveness as a a loss. And he, he has a point on this. Every time we are wronged by someone, it takes something from us. We feel that emotionally, but it's important to understand we have been robbed of something that we were owed. We should have been treated different than we were. We didn't deserve what they gave us or what they said about us or what they took from us. And so for us to forgive is to cancel a debt, and that's a minus. You see, justice that we talked about yesterday is a payment for the wrong that's been done. It's a plus designed to counter the minus of the sin or the wrong. So that's why whenever someone is released from prison, they've served their time, what do we say? They've paid their debt to society. They've served time to pay for what they took. The minus so the minus of the crime has been paid for by the plus of justice so to forgive again we talked about this yesterday is to forego justice and to cancel out the debt to to zero out the debt to remove it from the books to no longer demand collection for the wrong that's been done so peter's question is really a logical one it's one we've all had what is The limit, there's got to be a limit. I mean, we can't go on forgiving. That's too much. How much should we forgive? Now the consensus of the day, this, this question had been debated already. If you read through the Jewish writings of the day, pretty much the consensus was three was the limit. So if someone wrongs you three times, they didn't have baseball, but it was kind of three strikes, you're out, you're done. It's over. But Peter decided to go big. So he picked a number that seemed to be God's favorite, the number seven. And I I just imagine, I don't know for sure, but as I read through this and study it, my thought is that Peter was expecting Jesus to, to just wax eloquent about what a giant, forgiving heart he has, to go all the way from three to seven. I mean, more than doubled it and he went to seven. But of course, you know, Jesus, as we just read, doesn't just add to Peter's number. He doesn't say, well, 11. No, he, he multiplies. Now, some translations state it the way I read it to be 77, and some say 70 times seven. It's because the Greek language there, the, the way it's constructed, it, it could be either or. And so in the context, it's really hard to know. Was it 77 you know 7 times 11 or was it 70 times 7 or 490 but you know whether it's 77 or 490 it really does not change the point if you're trying to if you're saying okay that was number three you got 74 left how could could you keep track of that i mean even with a spreadsheet you'd have a hard time keeping track of that and if it was 490, forget it. There's no way you keep track of that. The point is this, the number is too big to keep track of. So what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying this literally, but to use this analogy, he's saying to Peter, forgiveness isn't about subtraction and addition. It's not about a balance, a ledger sheet. It's, it's about multiplication. That's what Jesus introduces. Peter's doing a addition, subtraction, kind of math question and Jesus introduces multiplication. Multiplication is exponential. The effects of both sin and forgiving sin are exponential, they multiply. And that's what ground zeros do. They are exponential. You know the first atom that splits sends off particles that split other atoms and on and on until the destruction is catastrophic. The same factors are at work in every conflict, as well as in every act of forgiveness. There's more going on. This is really important to so say. There's more going on than the original conflict and then even the, the decision you make to forgive. You have just introduced whether you're in conflict or whether you're forgiving, you've introduced a multiplying exponential effect into the future. On the conflict side, I don't know if you remember this, but years ago when there was that lone wolf bomber in New York that detonated a device in Times Square, as they did the investigation, they discovered that he was inspired by ISIS. Well, if you know the history of ISIS, ISIS was inspired by what? The Iraq War. The Iraq war was inspired by what? Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. I mean, on and on and on it goes. And this isn't just the case with global conflict. If you had a conflict with someone this week, it wasn't just an isolated incident. Now, it may seem like it was just between you and them. And at some level it was. But that was usually just the spark of the conflict. The kindling that made it a fire, made it possible to be a fire, had probably been collecting for some time in both of your lives. Past conflicts, past wrong that had been done to you, and to them created the ideal conditions for the firestorm that erupted. Now, it was still your choice and their choice to have whatever conflict you had. But it's important to understand Behind every conflict, there's a history that goes all the way back. If you could trace it, it goes all the way back to the ground zero event of the first sin. The moment when Adam and Eve decided to break with God and go their own way. That first split set off a chain reaction that has multiplied around the world, and forward throughout time. And that chain reaction of sin has been completely unstoppable until 2,000 years ago, a man in Palestine started doing miracles and started offering forgiveness to people. And one of the common response whenever Jesus would forgive someone was someone in the crowd, maybe the religious leaders, would often say, no one can forgive but God. Who are you to forgive? Because he wasn't forgiving wrong done to them or to him. He was forgiving people for just wrong, for sin. He was making blanket statements forgiveness the kind of thing that only God could do and they were saying but you you can't do that you're just a man you'd have to be God to do that well they were absolutely right you would have to be God to not just say the words but to actually grant the forgiveness well of course he turned out to be God you see human offers of forgiveness lack the power in and of themselves to counter sin. Only the offer of forgiveness from God can turn the tide against sin. So then at a meal on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus did something pretty shocking. Now, we've read about it, so the shock has worn off with us. But if you were there on that night to see Jesus do what he did and say what he said, you would have been scratching your head. Here's what we read in Luke 22:19. 19. It says, and he took bread at this meal. He gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them. All of this is normal. This is, this is what happens at the beginning of every Passover meal, as long as these disciples could remember one. But then he says something that would have been, wait, what did he just say? As he's handing out the bread and they're breaking off, or they're taking the pieces that he's broken off, he says, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This would have made no sense at all. I mean, we know this because it's part of communion now. But back at the original moment it was said, it would have been very confusing. I mean, how was his death. They, first of all, they wouldn't accept that he was going to die at this point anyways. They were proven wrong in just a matter of hours. But how is his death a gift to them? I mean, what he said is, this is my body given for you. These chunks of bread are going to look pretty similar to the chunks of flesh that are about to be ripped out of my body from those those whips. Now, that's a horrible thing, but how is that a gift to these disciples and now to us? Well, it's the greatest gift ever given, and that is the gift of forgiveness. But how is his body possibly going to give us that gift? I mean, really, how does that work? Well, there's only two things that can be done with the chain reaction meltdown of sin that was started by Adam and Eve. It's the same two things that can be done with the chain reaction meltdown of radiation. There's only two ways to handle radioactive chain reaction and sin chain reactions. The first thing you can do is you seal off the meltdown. If you remember the meltdown in Chernobyl or have read about it, I want to show you a picture of this big sarcophagus thing that has been built now and is placed over that site. And this thing is, I forget how many billions of dollars this thing cost. But the reason the European community came together to pay for this is because the meltdown of that nuclear reactor continues to this day. They weren't able to stop it. And once a meltdown Becomes a meltdown, it can't be stopped. So the sarcophagus that had the concrete that had been poured over it before was deteriorating and radiation was beginning to be leaked and was going to get to be catastrophic. So they came together and in a huge feat of engineering. They built this to contain the radiation. That's one thing you can do with radiation. But how do you seal off the meltdown of sin? That is exactly what hell is. Hell is the containment vessel for sin. That's what it is. Most people think hell is a joke, or it's an impossibility, or it's God just straight up being mean and petty. But that's not the case. Hell is the only practical way to contain the unstoppable meltdown of sin. It's the only way to seal it off. Now, thankfully, God loves us and is unwilling for that to be the final matter on sin, the containment option. That is option one. But in His great love for us, He came up with option number two. The only other way to stop a meltdown, whether it's radiation or sin, is to absorb the radiation or absorb the sin. Those are the only two ways that you can stop the chain reaction of radiation or the chain reaction of sin. So this is the way nuclear reactors work. The chain reaction starts and heat and power begins to come because the chain reaction is going, but if you couldn't control it, you'd have a Chernobyl. So control rods are lowered into the core, the radioactive core. This is a picture. All this water and that bright blue is the radioactive core, and there's control rods that are being lowered into. This is how r- reactors work. These control rods are made of material that can absorb the neutrons without splitting any more atoms. And it absorbs the radiation and it stops the chain reaction now when it comes to sin the meltdown of sin none of us are made of the material that can absorb sin you know like Peter we could maybe stretch and imagine absorbing seven sins from one person on one topic but eventually we reach our limit and the chain reaction of the wrong they've done to us continues in the wrong that we do to other people. And that's just one person. We are in the middle of a global sin meltdown. Every one of us are a sin meltdown mess. It's everywhere. And we might be able to forgive some on our own power, but not enough. Only God can do that. So God did the unthinkable. He took on a body. And that body, because it was fully God and fully man, was the only substance ever capable of absorbing the sin. Of the world. Now the thing about absorbing both radiation and sin is it can't be done at a distance. You know if you've got control rods here, they're not going to help with the meltdown at Chernobyl. The control rods need to be on site, they need to be inserted into the radioactive core. The same thing is true with sin. You can't absorb sin from heaven because sin isn't in heaven. Sin is here. So you have to go to the scene of the meltdown and insert the control rods in the reactor. This is why God could not absorb sin at a distance. He couldn't just, as powerful as he is, the very nature of sin and the reality that God has created. He can't just wave his hand over sin and say, I forgive all of you. It required a practical... Absorption of the sin. So he lowered himself to earth. Took on a body. And then lowered himself further all the way to the cross. And as he was dying on that cross, what he was doing was absorbing the meltdown of the sin of this world. That's what was happening when Jesus said, my body given for you. That's what he meant. So it's not enough, though, for Jesus just to come to earth and die in our place. Sin, kind of like radiation, to build this analogy out that I'm talking about, cannot be absorbed globally. Jesus himself and his mercy and his death must be inserted into the core of who we are, into our hearts. We must ask for the forgiveness and accept him into our lives. That's the power of forgiveness. That's why the cross is ground zero of forgiveness. And just like ground zero of sin, which was the sin of Adam and Eve, began a meltdown of disaster, the cross is to begin a good meltdown of mercy and forgiveness and healing. So forgiveness is not only exponential. This is why forgiveness is also reciprocal. What I mean by that is it, as you give it, it bounces right back at you. It affects you. I wouldn't say as much. I would say actually more, usually, then it affects the person you're forgiving. The forgiving decisions we make come back on us. You know, if you're at ground zero, you're in what's referred to as the blast zone. What that means is you cannot escape the effects of the blast. Same thing is true for conflict and forgiveness, both. The decision to forgive or not doesn't just affect the one who's done wrong, It affects others. It gets God's attention. But mostly it affects us. You know, when the man in the story that Jesus told, the parable, decided not to forgive, that decision landed him in debtor's prison. Here's the story as it continues in Matthew 18, 31 through 35. When the other servants saw what happened, what this is referring to is people who had seen this man forgiven 700 million And then they also saw him refuse to forgive $800. When these servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So the other servants see what happened and they're greatly distressed. Whenever we decide not to forgive, that is our decision. But it affects those that are close to us. They're watching. And more importantly, they're impacted by what they see. But beyond that, who also gets involved? In the story, the master does. Jesus is saying, God sees this stuff. And he decides to convince us of what a big deal forgiveness is to him. And he does this by locking us in the prison of our own making. There's a lot of debate about what this prison is and what it really means. And I'm not completely sure all of what it means. All I know Means I don't want to experience it. And that's enough for me to apply this verse to my life. What I have seen is when I don't forgive, and I've seen when other people don't forgive, they find themselves in a prison. I find myself in a prison of bitterness. In the prison of bitterness, I'll just tell you by personal experience and observation of others, it is one of the darkest dungeons ever constructed by mankind it has jailers that torture us relentlessly this bitterness thing does so when we don't forgive you know the reason we don't forgive is because we intend to punish the person who has wronged us but who ends up in prison we do we get the short end of that deal So, at the same meal where Jesus began by breaking bread and saying that it symbolized his body for us, he also ended the meal in a very surprising way. We read this in verse 20 of Luke 22. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, what does that mean? Again, you may have heard this most of your life or for years. But when they first heard this, it would have been a very shocking statement. Because a covenant is a contract. And when he says oh, the new covenant, everybody knows what the old covenant is. The old covenant was written in the Old Testament. In fact, it wasn't even called the old covenant now, it was just the covenant. But what the covenant that God made, the contract that God made between himself and us was, here's my moral boundaries, stay within them. But often right next to the covenants, the the laws of God, God saying, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. You'll be blessed if you do what is right. You will experience devastation if you do what is wrong. Often right next to those laws is the history of what the people did, usually breaking those laws and the consequences that they paid for it. And it's the same today. Right next to every single thing that God says in the Bible, you can probably find, maybe not every single thing, but a lot of things you can find a record of how you have not done that. Jesus really blew everyone's minds when he made it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that the covenant was not just a matter of actions, it was also a matter of heart. So to those who felt that they were doing pretty good because they had never committed adultery, Jesus said, if you've lusted with, against someone who's not your spouse in your heart, you've committed adultery. Well, now all of a sudden, everyone's guilty. Or for those who felt good about not violating the commandment to not murder, and Jesus said, if you've been angry, you've committed—you violated this in your heart. So right next to every part of the covenant, of the contract of, between God and us, is a record of how we have violated that covenant. That's the old covenant. The details differ for all of us, but the records all point to the same result. We're not in good shape. So then Jesus stands up at the end of this meal and speaks of a new covenant written in his blood. Now, the new contract, the new contract to offer from God is this. Accept the perfect life of Jesus given in exchange for your imperfect life and the detailed record of your life will now be written in his blood. That's what Jesus is saying. What does that mean? So let's just get very practical on this. Let's say we sin this week. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say we already have. <laughs> that sin, along with all of the other sins up to this point in our life, are entered into the permanent record under our name, kept by God. And what Jesus is saying is that record can be written in one of two kinds of ink. It can be written either in the ink of your life, blood, your life, or the ink of Christ's blood. Your life blood or His. Now let's be clear, the words that are written down are exactly the same words. So let me explain it this way. Let's say one of the sins that you committed this week is you lied. So we're gonna put up here on the screen, the word lie, two colors to represent two inks. So if you lied this week, next to your name or under your name would be the date and the sin. Lie. Probably more details, but we'll just simplify it with lie. What's the difference between having that word lie written in the ink of your blood in the ink of Christ's blood? The difference is in how permanent it is. Our lifeblood is permanent. It's a record of how we've used our time here on earth. Doesn't change. But the blood of Christ is like writing in invisible ink it's accurate and then it's forgiven it disappears it's not that jesus says what lie i didn't know about a lie you didn't lie it's like oh no you lied written in my blood watch what i'll do forgiven it's not magic Jesus paid a tremendous price for that to happen. This is amazing. We can have our entire life record of sin written in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant in his blood. This is why it's for us. There's no downside in this. This is the best of all news. And that's why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This must be remembered. You know, it took about 10 years to construct a suitable memorial for Ground Zero in New York. I don't know if you remember or read about all of the ideas and the challenges. There was just a lot of debate. I mean, the the real debate was how in the world could you capture in physical form, the essence of what happened on that day, on 9-11. But everyone agreed a memorial is needed. I mean, one of the things that was said over and over and over again in the wake of 9-11 is we will what? Not forget. But the truth is, we forget. So there need to be a memorial. I mean, the reason is not everyone was there. And time has a way of fading the memory of what took place. And my guess is some of you weren't even born when that happened. So you don't have the memory, I do, of watching those towers fall. But it's important for you to remember. It's part of what has shaped us as a nation at this point. And so there's some things like that that we dare not forget. And when it comes to the ground zero forgiveness, we dare not forget that. But none of us were there. So Jesus solved the impossible task of finding a way to adequately remember that day. At that meal, not only did he break the bread and declare that it was a symbol of his body given for us, not only did he take that cup of wine and say it was a symbol of the new covenant written in his blood, he went on to say do this in remembrance of me. Do what I have done. It's not complicated. Just from time to time, gather and eat pieces of bread to remember my body given for you and drink juice or wine to remember my body, my blood poured out for you. This is an absolutely brilliant memorial because to go to Ground Zero New York you got to get on a plane and go there. I've never been. But with this memorial, no pilgrimage is needed. A little piece of bread, a little piece of juice, you're there. Everyone can afford this. Everyone can do this. You see, a good memorial has the ability of transporting us across the distance of time and space right back to that moment. I think the best human memorial I've ever been in was the Children's Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. It's the simplest memorial I've ever seen. You walk in, and on this glass pedestal is a pair of infant booties. that were found in one of those gas chamber things. So it's an actual pair of booties. And then there's all of this reflected glass all the way around it. So as you look around, there's just a spotlight on those booties. And as you look around, it's like thousands of booties floating in the air around you. And the names of these children that were killed are read one by one as you walk through I can't remember exactly, you can look it up. But they read every name of every child that was killed in the Holocaust. And they read it all the way through until they get to the end, and then they start over again. The museum is open about 12 hours a day, I think six days a week throughout the year. And my memory is, you know how long it takes them to read through every name? To get back to the beginning of the list? Seven years. I mean, I'll never forget that. It's like I've never, been to the Holocaust. I've never been to the concentration camp, but it's like I was transported to the horror of that event. And that's what this is designed to do. This memorial of Jesus Christ. is to transport us back there, to put us there the memorial of Jesus and what he did for us. These are two things that we are to never forget. His body broken and given to absorb your sin. His blood spilled to be used to write the record of your life and then forgive it. So we're going to do that tonight. So if um, you don't have one of these little packets of juice and bread on the top. Go ahead and raise your hand and I think Aaron will get you one. But if you got one, great. So we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna lead you through this, so don't do anything with it right now. One of the things that we are told by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians about this memorial and the appropriate way to remember He says this in verse 28 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. He said, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. He he goes on to say, because if we eat and drink without remembering the body of the Lord, we, we eat and drink in a way that is dishonoring to Him. What he's saying is, this is not just some sad event for us to feel emotions about and then move on. Now, this is is a moment when God's forgiveness was offered. This This is to be the moment that we remember when, like the man in the parable, we were forgiven a debt we could not pay. And that, like the man in the parable, was supposed to be a moment not just to be grateful for, but to allow us to turn around and change the way we view our life and the people we see around us particularly those who have wronged us. So if like that man in the story Jesus told, we're turning around to those who have wronged us and we're refusing to forgive, we are not remembering what has been done for us. We've had instant amnesia. So we're going to take a moment before we partake of this. And I want you to do two things. This is just personally, silently. We're just going to I thought about doing music. I thought, no, let's just have absolute dead silence for your thoughts, you and the Holy Spirit. Two questions I want you to ask. Who do you need to forgive? Totally forgive. Who is that? Or whom (laughs) do you need to forgive? How many? If you need to, write their names down. If you can remember in your head, that's fine. And then secondly, related to them, what is the next step for you to take? Maybe there isn't a next step because maybe they're no longer alive and you need to forgive them, but there's nothing you can say. But maybe there is a next step you can take. Maybe there isn't. But who do you need to forgive? What's the next step for you to take? So I'm going to give us just a few minutes to think through that. And then I'm going to lead us together in this remembrance. So, let's take some time in personal prayer to reflect on these. Okay, let's remember now what our Lord did for us. So, go ahead and, if you've never used one of these, there's kind of two layers you peel back. The first one, just peel back the top. You can set this little wafer thing here. So, go ahead and everyone do that. And in the words of Jesus, when he said on that night, on the eve of his arrest, before his crucifixion, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this together in remembrance. Now go ahead and peel the rest of it back to get it the juice. then at the end of the meal, Jesus said this. He lifted up the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Jesus, we are so grateful that you not only went to the cross, but you first took on a body, descended to this earth, and then you lived a perfect life that none of us ever have or ever could and then you were falsely accused and spit on and beaten and mocked and you did not retaliate you did not threaten you entrusted yourself to your father who judges justly because of your love for us we thank you for the price you've paid for your bloodshed for us and Father, I pray that in the moment when we are struggling with forgiveness, that we would turn around to you and remember all that we've been forgiven. And then we would turn back to you, or back to the one that we need to forgive, and offer what we have received. We thank you, and we pray this in the name of of the one who's forgiven us,
0: Jesus Christ. Amen. You just heard Bevan wrap up his three-part series on total forgiveness. If you liked what you heard, leave us a rating and review on iTunes because it helps us to reach other people with these great messages. You can also subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And you can find more about us at uschristianchallenge.com or find us on social media at USC Challenge.